Welcome to episode 78 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we'll have a review of another new 2020 release with the Blake Lively starring action thriller, The Rhythm Section. We'll also have our Oscar predictions in the Big Eight categories as we prepare for this weekend's Academy Awards. But first, how are you, Scott? Scott, I'm doing great. Uh, As anyone who follows me on Letterboxd or Twitter would know, I spent the day yesterday, or I shouldn't say the whole day because it was only eight hours, but eight hours uh, at uh, the AMC in downtown Boston Commons area because it was day one of the Best Picture Showcase, which I can't remember if I said on here before is one of the things that I've been looking forward to and wanting to do each of the last two years, but was unable to because I'm always traveling in the back half of February pretty much every weekend when it normally when the Oscars normally are. And so that's when the showcase would normally be. But this year with the Oscars being only the second weekend in February, I have the luxury this year of being able to do the showcase. So I went for day one. We watched Ford vs. Ferrari, then Joker, then Little Women. And, you know, I really thought it was going to be harder than it was. I, I don't know. Like, Joker is is Joker. One thing that I will say about it is I think I even got more negative on the second viewing than I had in the first. But I was engaged the entire time. Like, I wasn't bored. It's not a boring film. It moves along at a, at a tight pace, I'd say, because it's only, I mean, it's less than two hours. Uh, so I, I wasn't ever, like getting bored or, you know, worried that I wasn't going to make it through the full eight hours because all three of those films, you know, very engaging and and in their own, in very different ways, three very different ways. And so it was a really good time. And I'm looking forward to next weekend when we do Jojo, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Parasite and 1917. And I'm racking my brain to see if it's worth doing Marriage Story and and The Irishman this week just to get the full uh, completion. But I don't think so because that's like six hours of movies between those two. Yeah, fair enough. Now, I mean, look, you said you wanted to do it the last couple of years. I think, honestly, this is, you know, one of the best years in a long time to do it, yeah. um, with the exception of Joker. You, you got a bunch of good movies to watch. Um, yeah. And so, uh, I mean, I, I it's something that I would consider doing. Like, this this year would be a year when I would consider doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. It is just such a commitment. And, like, I've seen a lot of the movies multiple times. Um, yeah. And so... I, I don't know. It kind of diminishing returns for me, probably. But um, yeah, I have yeah, seen a bunch I'm of the glad movies. you're getting to do it. Yeah, I have seen a bunch of the movies a couple times. You know, I've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and and Parasite in 1917 uh, a couple times. But the rest of them I haven't. And so it was actually really nice because I was I've been I mean I was telling you this off air, but uh, I have been looking to go see Little Women again. I was I was almost about to do it a couple weeks ago. But then when I realized that I was going to see it in the showcase, I was like, I oh, don't know, it's fine. I'll watch something different yeah. instead. So it's actually been really nice for that because I think uh, all, well, I should say all three of the movies I saw yesterday, I think my opinion changed a little bit on them and in, in going towards more of the extremes. I thought I, I enjoyed Ford vs. Ferrari better. Some of the things that didn't work for me the first time, I think worked a little bit better for me this time. Uh, Joker, I got more frustrated with the fact that I just think Todd Phillips is trying to throw everything at the wall and it doesn't commit to anything in the story. And then with Little Women, I think I just was able to lean back and 
really just absorb everything as opposed to really try to follow the story since it was my first introduction. So what I'm this time, and I think the movie benefits a lot from familiarity with the story because the performances are just so spectacular across the board uh, in Little Women. So uh, fan yeah, it was it was really nice to revisit all those movies for a second time, even though you know Joker is, is Joker. But and I and I look forward to seeing what like a third and a third watch will do for the movies next week, with the exception of JoJo. I mean, we'll see if my opinion about JoJo changes. I'm not sure that it yeah. will, but. Um, yeah, it, it's really it's really cool to do, and and you know regardless whether it's in the showcase or not, I think that one of the things that we often don't get as much the opportunity to do is see movies multiple times, uh, where like a lot of movie critics, yes, they review it after the first time they see it, but uh, I think your opinion of the film, especially the best films, really do evolve, even if their score, or your rating of them doesn't change. I think they evolve over multiple watches, and that's something that I've really enjoyed this year, getting to watch the best films multiple times. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I've definitely uh, seen more movies multiple times in theaters this past year than I have ever before. So, and that's just because some of the movies were so good, and I yeah, just exactly. watching them. I, I probably knock on wood. I'll probably go see Little Women a fourth time before it leaves theaters, but um, we'll see. I mean, well, I don't know how long it's going to stay in theaters, but I feel like it's going to be a few more weeks because it's going to get probably another bump after the Oscars, maybe um, like some movies do. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. Unfortunately, I just don't know if Little Women is the movie that's going to get an Oscars bump. I hope, I hope that it does. I hope that yeah. it does stay long. I mean, because it's not going to win anything. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, after last night, I'm I'm not so confident it'll win anything. But we'll get to that later. Yeah, we will. Um, but Scott, for now, let's pivot away from the 2019 releases uh, and talk about a 2020 film, uh, The Rhythm Section. The Rhythm Section is directed by Reed Morano, and it centers on a British woman named Stephanie Patrick, played by Blake Lively whose life changes forever when her family dies in a plane crash. Driven into depression, Stephanie turns to drugs and prostitution until a reporter, played by Raza Jeffrey, tracks her down because he has uncovered that the plane crash wasn't an accident, but a bombing perpetrated by a terrorist named Mohamed Reza. Making it her mission to get revenge for her family, Stephanie begins training with an MI6 officer, played by Jude Law, to learn the skills that will help her accomplish her goal. Scott, the rhythm section follows in the footsteps of other recent slick female-led thrillers, Atomic Blonde and Red Sparrow, but does it offer enough new material to appease audiences? Yeah, good good question. I think that in terms of new material, yes, honestly, it, it does. I think it provides new material to answer that question. I mean, you talk about Atomic Blonde and Red Sparrow. Atomic Blonde is, of course, Charlize Theron 2017 film that really looks at this sort of Cold War era spy thriller where you have this extremely competent, um, savvy, and and you know question mark around what her true intentions are, spy who is going through this Cold War era mission, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. Then you have Red Sparrow, which is Jennifer Lawrence led. I think was that was it 2018? Yeah, yeah, I think it was 2018. Uh, yeah, and it, this is a movie that is much more about the twists and turns. I mean, Atomic Blonde is too, but much more I think invested in its twists and turns. Um, and getting to know uh, this character as she transforms into, you know, Red, a, a sparrow, a red sparrow. And, you know, Charlize in Atomic Blonde is someone who I think it, it always has this air of mystery about her. And, and you don't really learn too much. Whereas Red Sparrow is, I think, a lot about that journey uh, with Jennifer Lawrence's character. And this one is also about a journey, but in a different way. I mean, you have this character who, I mean, the setup to the film is very basic, loses her family. And you know, essentially just feels like her life is over, Does is searching for meaning, can't really seem to find any, and really just kind of drives off a cliff 
uh, metaphorically in terms of where the direction her life goes. I mean, it's dropped that she was this like top top of her class at Oxford or something when all this was happening, things like that. But what develops is is not something like Atomic Blonde or Red Sparrow. I think what you get is this person who's just hell bent on on revenge and you know essentially bounces around from place to place uh, across the story uh, with with a lot more help than maybe she deserves and really survives only by the skin of her teeth and not really by her competencies as, as a spy. And so in that sense, I think this movie does have something new to add to the genre. Unfortunately, the movie is just not good. The movie is just not good at all. I think Blake Lively gives a good enough performance and probably makes this character like barely watchable. But I, I mean, like this, I mean, you talked about Red Sparrow, especially in the front half, being a very difficult movie to watch because of everything that's happening to Jennifer Lawrence's character in that. I mean, this movie is difficult to watch from start to finish. Like just something about this film, the atmosphere, the grittiness, the just, I don't know, unrelenting, like bad things that continue to happen both to the like, both to Blake Lively's uh, Stephanie, as well as just the people around her. It's just like not enjoyable to watch whatsoever. And it just doesn't have, to me, it just has no redeeming qualities. I, I really don't know what Sterling K. Brown is doing in this movie. I don't know why he takes this role. I don't know why Jude Law takes this role, although Jude Law takes a lot of roles and some of them are questionable. I, I don't know if this was that far out of left field for him, but, and, and then especially like Blake Lively, right? I mean, she had Shallows before she, before she went out and, and she recently had her, her third child. I forget the movie. Oh, so of course, A Simple Favor was the last movie she did. And like, yeah. even that, like I had my reservations with A Simple Favor. I thought she was great in it. I think she's fine in this. And, that, and fine is probably the ceiling for this movie because everything about this movie is poor besides her performance. Yeah, no, I felt watching this like I did during the first hour of Red Sparrow, which was the bad hour of Red Sparrow. Yeah. Um, and I think that what the, you know, the major problem that that hour of that movie had is the, is one of the major problems with the rhythm section, which is that it just takes itself so seriously. And there, there are times when it flirts with, something a little more fun, like with the, some of the musical cues, which feel very out of place. And so like there are times when it flirts with that, but because it doesn't go all the way with that, because the rest of the movie is sort of asynchronous with those few moments, those musical cues just feel out of place where, whereas, you know, I would have liked to seen them in a better movie. And, and yeah, the, the, the plot of this movie has so many holes in it from the very beginning. It goes absolutely nowhere. I, at the end, I felt like this movie could have been resolved in about an hour. But instead, like Blake Lively just sort of gets sent on all these like side quests, basically, just so that they can fill time during the second hour or, or, you know, the second part of the movie. And I was just like asking myself at various points, like, why, what, why is she doing this again? Why is she going after this person? Like, and, and there didn't seem to be a great reason for it. I think the, the plot becomes needlessly convoluted, um, you, you know, as, as Blake Lively gets deeper into this. Um, not only is it convoluted, it just doesn't make any sense. Like yeah. it, it's more than just like, oh, there's a lot of things happening and you can't piece it all together. It's like honestly, the plot's like quite basic, and it just doesn't make any sense why why, why she's doing any of the things. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, again, like like I was saying, I, I feel like I don't understand why there's the middle section of this movie exists. Like why why can't she just go straight to you know this terrorist that she's trying to kill and, and kill him? It doesn't seem like he's in hiding or anything like that. I, I don't know. I just had a lot of questions. Um, but there, there, there are a lot of questions throughout the movie and, and they really frankly don't get answered. Um, I think, I think the, the action is 
fine, but really you're not seeing anything that you haven't seen before um, in in better movies, to be quite honest. Yeah, I think there's one good scene. Yeah. Um, And I'm a fan of Blake Lively, but I just don't. I mean, I didn't really like A Simple Favor either. Good performance, perhaps, yes. Um, But I I don't think she's given much to do here. Her British accent is a little all over the place. Um, And and it's just it's kind of a questionable casting choice, I guess, in the end. Um, So, yeah, I this if I had to sum this movie up in one word, it is forgettable, Mm -hmm. like. 10 minutes after the movie, I was struggling to remember anything about what I just seen because there's nothing new. There's nothing engaging. It's just sort of uh, feels very recycled and it feels exactly like what you would expect from like a late January release. Yeah. And painfully predictable. I mean, the ending was, you could have seen that coming a mile away. Yeah. I mean, you you talked about Red Sparrow, right? Like the, the, what made the second part of that movie good was you didn't see the twist coming and like they, they weren't ridiculous. They actually did make sense when you thought about it. But, you know, the movie kept you guessing. This movie, I, I mean, if it's even trying to keep you guessing, it doesn't. Like, there, there's really no suspense. or I think, no it's trying, it, I think it is trying to keep you guessing is the thing, which is which is maybe what makes it worse. <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, it, it completely fails in that and in, in a lot of other regards, I think. But, Scott, why don't we talk about something which maybe is one of the, the better parts of the movie, which is the performance by Blake Lively. Have anything more to add here about what you think she's able to bring to this movie? Does she elevate it uh, beyond some of its many flaws? A little bit. I mean, I can't, I can't. I can't even say that it really does that because I honestly, this movie. Because usually with movies that are bad, like even even take Joker for example, like there are performances and there are elements of the film that do elevate it above. But there's just so many things wrong with this film that I have a hard time even saying that this perform like her performance is able to really lift it that much. I found her accent very distracting, probably just because I'm so familiar with her and know what her real accent sounds like. I don't, I can't help but think that Jodie Comer must just have passed on this role, which is why they had to go to to Blake Lively or someone with not a British accent. Uh, granted, I mean, Jodie Comer doesn't have a British accent, technically, I guess it's a very strong, different kind of accent uh, that's British tangent. But anyway, I digress. I just think that, yeah, but Blake Lively is a star, and, and I kind of joke when I talk about Jodie Comer like that, but, but Blake Lively is a star, and this is someone who, when you attach her to a film, you're going to get at least a few butts in seats, right? It is, a, it is an attractive enough name, right? And that must have been what the hope was for this film. And again, I think she does something like she's trying to do something here with this film. She is trying to bring this element of, you know, an action thriller with a, you know, female lead that shows you that like, Oh, like the, all the action, like all the sexy action spy thrillers before this, you know, th- this is something a little bit grittier, a little bit more realistic than what you might get with an atomic blonde or even a red sparrow. And that's that like, turns out like, being a spy is hard and being a spy is hard for this character of Stephanie and Blake Lively, I think embodies that well. It embodies the nature of, like I was kind of saying early, kind of almost haranguing from moment to moment, like out of control with no idea what she's doing. Uh, like she's, she only by chance in, like kills all the, except for one kills all the people in this movie, right? Like the, all the people that she's responsible for killing only one of them was went down how she intended to go down. Yeah. And that's because of her incompetence. And I, and I think that there is something to say about that. And I think that Blake Lively uh, does that well as someone who is, you know, headstrong, stubborn, self-confident, wears her like tortured pain and past on, on her on her sleeve. The problem was, is this that, again, even in that performance, it lends itself to one of the things that I thought 
it, that you mentioned that I was referring uh, alluding to as well is just that it takes itself too seriously. It's a movie that gets so bogged down in its I don't know the the sincerity of the trauma that led to the events that are happening to the point where I like to the point where I was just like man they're really leaning so hard into this and honest honest to goodness like I don't even know if I can understand why Blake Lively went from this horrible thing that happened to three years later being a drug addict prostitute in um, like what is essentially um, you know a whorehouse in, in in London and like again a horrible event and. I'm not saying that people can't lose control of certain aspects of their life, but especially when you're told like she's top of her class at Oxford, it like, again, I'm not saying that this wouldn't happen in real life. I just was like, man, I have a hard time just connecting the dots here uh, to get to these different things. And not even Blake Lively's performance, I think can really elevate uh, that. And especially some of the choices that happen in the second half of the movie with her character and the relationships that she forms with different people, man, just none of it makes any sense to me. And because of that, I just, I, again, I, I keep reiterating this. I just don't know if even the greatest Oscar perf winning performance could elevate this film out of, you know, out of the doldrums that it sits in. I, I mean, it doesn't really make sense. Like it's so cliche that the fact that she um, like, of course, what, what is it that this woman does when she faces a tragedy, she turns to drugs and sex work. Like that, I just feel like we've seen that so many times. Like why that other than just for, because it's a, a trope there's there seems to be no purpose for that in the movie again because it doesn't seem like that's the hard left turn that this this person would take even after the tragedy that she experiences especially um, when you have oh, someone like blake lively who is this very strong female lead in movies yeah it, it, it's asynchronous just in the type of role that she's doing it feels like that that's true and so from the very beginning i was just kind of at a distance um and yeah like the the drugs angle isn't really explored at all. Like it's kind of set up, but then it's just like goes away basically. I mean, do you even um, remember the journalist at the beginning of the film? Yeah. Um, Proctor was his name. Somehow yeah. I remember that. I, I mean, I, I, I was looking it up earlier. That's the only reason I remember. But, um, but there is one moment I like from her when she like is going out into the water. Like she's tra training with Jude Law and he wants her to swim out in this freezing water. She won't do it. But then finally she decides she's going to do it. And so she like walks out into the water and is like gradually getting accustomed to it. And like, it's a, you know, it's a silence scene from her. Like she doesn't say anything, but um, her body language and, you know, face acting in this scene is really, really good. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, made me wish in that moment that she had gotten better material here to work with throughout because the shallows is great. Like I love the shallows. It's a fun B movie. Um, I think Blake Lively is great and it doesn't take itself too seriously. Right. Like it has this ridiculous premise about this woman who's stranded however many feet from the shore or whatever by a shark. Um, but it, like, it doesn't try to be anything more than it is. Um, and you know, even a simple favor, right? Like, well, I didn't enjoy the movie. It was, for other reasons really than the tone of the movie. Like, I think, I think they struck the right tone of, of, you know, we're just trying to make a fun, like sexy thriller. Now I, I don't think it really was particularly fun or sexy, but that was what they were going for. And that was clear. Like, I don't think it tried to, it pretended to be anything more than it was either. Whereas this movie, I think wants to be something, you know, you know, more serious wants to explore like the trauma that this woman has gone through, but just really, it doesn't have any sort of nuance whatsoever in doing so. So, um, I think, yeah, my, my problems are definitely more with the movie than they are with her. I think, um, you know, if, if you, you tweak some things in this movie, her performance might, might've really grabbed me, but 
just the material fails her at, at most turns in the movie. Okay, how about the supporting cast, Scott? So we mentioned um, really the, the only two big names here are, are Jude Law and Sterling K. Brown. Jude Law playing this MI6 officer who trains like lively and then Sterling K. Brown playing this like CIA guy. I mean, I wasn't exactly sure. Yeah, yeah, his position. But he he come he he uh, works his way into the plot about halfway through the movie and becomes a, a contact for uh, for Blake Lively's character. Uh, did either of these, admittedly very good actors, uh, do anything again to elevate the material? Did they grab you with their performances, or were you kind of just left wondering why they were in the movie? Look, I'll say this. Jude Law, has he won an Oscar? I know he's been nominated, but... Uh, no. No. Sterling K. Brown, has he been nominated? No. No, he hasn't. Well, okay, these are two outstanding actors. And what I was going to say is that these are probably, if not already, both going to be Oscar-nominated actors, and it will not be for this movie. In fact, I think, especially Sterling K. Brown, I think will want to erase this movie from people's memories as quickly as possible. Not because of the performance that he gives in this film. I think his performance is whatever. It's fine. Like nothing, nothing in this movie will, will, it, it really is greater than fine. Like I kind of mentioned earlier, but it's just like the particularness or the particularity of this role. I was just like, man, why on earth did you sign up to do this role? Like, I don't understand it at all. I, I don't want to say too much about it just because it does come in the second half of the film. And so I don't want to stray too far into, in, into any spoilers, at least not yet. But like, I just don't understand, like, like, especially because he joined this project very late. So this, I was looking at the production history of this film and they actually had to stop shooting because Blake Lively, I think injured herself. It was very Mission Impossible Fallout, I guess. And I can't remember what exactly the injury was right now, but she injured herself and they had to come back and finish shooting. And it was only after, like when they came back- I think back, it might've been her wrist. Yeah. I think that's right, yeah. And it was only when they came back is when he joined the cast. And like, or at least, you know, maybe he was signed on way before, but it just seemed like he was a very late addition that they needed to fill out. I mean, they knew they had this character they needed to fill out, I'm sure, but a very late addition. And I think that he'll just really hope that people forget about this movie immediately. And they very well might forget about this film. But I just think that, you know, especially when you, when you have an actor doing stuff like Waves from last year and, and he didn't get enough Oscar buzz for, as much as he deserved for that film because I thought he was fantastic. But man, like, boy, you want to wipe this one from your filmography as quickly as possible, I think, because this is just not the kind of, this is not the kind of resume building role that you want. I mean, I, I maybe understand the idea around taking this role because it, di- it is a very different role than I've seen him take in the past, uh, ultimately. But the, just so so much of this film is, is poor, especially the way the characters are written. Uh, it, it didn't give him the opportunity to show that he could do a different kind of role, uh, which I totally 100% believe that he could do. And in some ways, Waves was even a, a initiate, like a starting point or a midway point. And development from what you might see as this very straight-laced, pure actor who's trying to do a little bit more complex and nuanced roles. Jude Law, like, man, people will, I think people will forget immediately that Jude Law was in this film because Jude Law has really had a, had a mixed bag of filmography. I mean, he's done some amazing stuff, absolutely, and he will do amazing stuff in the future. But he's had a few sneakers in there uh, in there as well and, and some real oddball roles that I'm sure he just gets a very fat paycheck for. And why not, you know? But I, again... Even if these performances had been stellar, which I wouldn't even say that they were, there's just nothing in this film that gives them the content they need to really get there, to really show what they're what they're really capable of as actors. And both of these roles are so throwaway. I mean, and you could cast any one of these roles. Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting about the sort of the history of Sterling K. Brown in this movie because 
it does feel like it was just written to be played by no one. Like, I mean, you know, play, played by a, a no-name actor, really. Like, the, that's the way that the role was was written. Like, it, yep. it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like this role was written for with with a, some A-list actor, even B-list actor in mind for like taking the role. But I guess maybe they were just able to throw enough money at Sterling K. Brown and to to you know may, maybe uh, pull him in, like ha- have him as like a you know a feature on the the marquee to, to draw people in, you know, the fact that Sterling K. Brown is in this movie. Although I don't think I realized he was in the movie until the movie started. Um, I knew that Drew Law and Blake Lively were in it, but I don't even think I knew that he was in it. But the only um, reason I knew is that he was in the trailer. Yeah. See, uh, I, I've seen the trailer a few times. I didn't remember that part, but anyway, I, I think as far as Jude Law goes, I, it's really int- weird. Like what, what I just really don't know what they want this character to be because uh, it feels like during these training montages, they want him to be like, you know, it's it's like supposed to be like the Rocky training sequences or something, right? Like, and and he's supposed to be the tra- the you know the trainer who is hard nosed on the surface, but really, you know, he has a heart of gold underneath or whatever. But that doesn't that's not really what he turns out to be. He just turns out to be kind of a jerk. Um, and and, and also, this role is like one that I think has a lot of potential to to really have some emotion if that's the direction the screenwriters and the director wanted but this role also i mean also blake lively's as well it's just so emotionally vacant it's just so confusing yeah. i mean there's a there's a particular moment in the second half of the film that happens and it's just like that and like they move past it and i'm like well this, this, you could really have explored this and this is where you know it could have been a, a turning point in the film for the direction that your film was going i just didn't understand it at all because there was potential for the role to be something but and they just breeze past it yeah, I, I mean, like I was saying, I just think like this character is supposed to be there to like empower her and whatever, and I and I guess he does, but just like the way in which he does so was not satisfying to to me at all. Um, and, and there's a, there's like a weird moment where she comes in, into the house with him or whatever, and is like, "When are you going to teach me how to fight?" You know, it's been a month, and I was like, "We've been, it's been a month." Like th- there is, it is not clear at all that the, that that much time has passed. Like it feels like it, it real. It honestly feels like she's been there for a couple of days, and then she's like, "It's been a month." So I'm like, "What's going on during that month? Like, what is what kind of relationship is forming between these characters? We don't get any sense of that." And you know, by the time the third act rolls around, Jude Law just kind of gets ditched. Like he just kind of goes away in this movie. Shows up right at the end for this really totally lame ending. Are you the very final scene? Yes, yes. Well, he was there in the third act for what I, the part that I was talking about. Which part were you talking about? When she goes to New York. Right, 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 right. But but then, like, for the action climax and all of that, he he's not present for any of that. Um, oh, that's true. Sorry. I, I was forgetting. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Uh, because she, she basically, she makes a choice to leave him behind at one point. But anyway. Um, yeah. That That's how I feel about Jude Law's performance. I don't think it really works here. Uh, I, I don't think it was... In, in the way that I, like, I, I think Sterling K. Brown just shouldn't have been in this role. Like, I could see a good actor playing um, this role that Jude Law is playing, but it just need, needed to be a better written character. I think maybe, and like... it could have been Jude Law, too. Like, honestly, it could be Jude yeah. Law playing that character. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I was going to say, I think maybe more of, like, a character actor would have been the right person for this type of role. But even still, I think Jude Law is great. Um, they they right. just Brad, needed... Brad Pitt should have been, been the trainer. No. So yeah, okay. So that's the cast, Scott. Um, I guess now we can talk about the plot uh, and any spoilers that you want to touch on. Um, again, I don't think you can really spoil this movie because it's pretty bad. <laughs> um, yeah, 
so I wouldn't be concerned too much about spoilers, but if you want to get into any details now, feel free to do so. Look, honestly, the less time we spend talking about this plot, the better. So let's just jump right into spoilers. The big turning, the big twist in the film is that, you know, Sterling K. Brown's character, ex-CIA character, Mark Sarah, is like the U-17, like the terror, the terrorist, or however you want to think about, you know, this character that Blake Lively's been hunting. He's the person who ordered uh, or like commissioned the bomb to be made and put on the plane that killed her entire family. And, you know, as climactic as the action scene might be with Re- Re- Mohammed Reza on the bus, which is in, I can't remember which country it was in. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, there's a scene where that's in the trailer, even where this bomb ends up blowing up a bus. Um, and that's a, that's a climactic action scene. And you're like, Oh, like now we're going to figure out like now the real climax is going to happen when she confronts. Well, cause you think that she's confronting you 17 for real, although it was dumb. I, and I think that like the logic behind that was dumb, but, but we'll get to that in a second. And then, you know, the fact that it's like fakes you as like, oh no, this isn't the real climax of the movie. And then it goes to the second. And then what you expect to be the real climax of the movie is like a total letdown when she like goes back to the house. Sterling K. Brown's character, of course, doesn't realize that she knows that he's the, the subject and she uses the um, the needle with the toxin yeah. from earlier in the film to kill him. And that's it. The scene's over in five seconds and it's over. And then the movie just ends. Like, <laughs> it, well, it's, so it's so anti-climax. It's so anti-climax. I was just saying, there's one more scene that takes like one minute. Yeah, and so it's one of those things where you go this entire film and you're and you're gonna have this really climactic face-off between Stephanie and this person who ruined her life, this person who's responsible for causing her to enter this tailspin and completely throw her life away, it seems like. And you don't even get that. You don't even get that. She just kills him and it's over, which in some scenarios would be fine if there are other components of the story addressed or other themes that have been addressed before that. But they aren't, and so it, like there's not this there's not this whole scene where she comes to terms with the fact that you know her parents have died, and maybe you could say that happens after she kills um, Mark Sarah Sterling K Brown's character, and then goes and talks with the mom of another person on the on the plane, and, and she doesn't take her ring back, or whatever she tells her to keep it, but uh, like that moment. But even that was unsatisfying because I just don't understand. I don't understand the need for those characters. None of, like none of it just makes any sense. And the fact that Sterling K. Brown was the person, like at the beginning of the movie, I thought, well, you know what? Maybe this character B of Jude Law might actually be the one who's behind it all. But pretty quickly, I it became clear to me that he wasn't going to be the one. And as soon, I mean, literally, as soon as this character is introduced, I'm like, this character doesn't exist unless he is the unless he is the uh, the person behind all this because they're not going to in- introduce another person. Into, the, into this film, into like a mystery spy thriller uh, that you have no connection to whatsoever at the end of the film as like the true uh, the true criminal. That just wasn't ever going to be what the film was going to do. It didn't, it didn't feel that way to me. And so I immediately felt that way. And then it becomes again, very clear in sort of the action climax of the film when she's fighting Reza that this is the guy, he even, they even, I mean, they even say it explicitly at the end of the scene. And then this anticlimactic ending, Scott, I mean, it's just so forgettable. Yeah, there's so many moments where like they're going for like the like to make her look cool, like they're going for like the cool badass moment, or and it just they all just fall completely flat because of the script. I mean, the in the very end is is one example I think where they they want this to be like the epic like right off into the sunset, you know, badass moment for this character, and it's just not like her last line is a complete dud. But um, 
yeah, I, like like I said, I had problems from the very beginning with like logic and stuff. Like, first of all, how does this reporter guy even find her? Like, she is like at, working as a prostitute under a different name. Like, it's not explained at all how he tracks her down. Yeah. Second of all, why does he track her down? Right there, there are a lot of people who who passed away on this plane. Why does he track her down and say, "Look, I want you specifically." Like I, I like I want you specifically to go get revenge or whatever, right? Like as he's telling her all about what he's discovered. Like, why her? Why not go find any of the other family members of anyone else who, you know, died? Why why find this person who is like you it know has to be I, harder I, to find than all the rest of them. Too. And, and, and so I just I had problems from the very beginning. Um also and, the and fact then, like I said, you'll never find B. And he's just in this like obvious house and like on the like shore of yeah. This like lock, I think it's like Freylock or something. Like it's just like that wasn't hard to find out. She just walked right up to his house. And and like I said, I think in the middle section, it just feels like I was questioning why certain things were happening. Like the she has she kills like a she has to, she basically has a couple of contracts kills that she has to do like that she does before she ever even gets to Reza. There's like this guy Layman's or something who she goes to his house and there's just a weird it's a, fight. Scene. It's the opening scene of the film, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but then they come back to the actual scene later. But yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's this other guy, Leon Guiler or whatever, that she like dresses up. She she pretends to be a prostitute to to kill or whatever. Um, and like you said, that scene goes wrong too. Um, and I, I just I lost sense any sense of who these characters were and like the grander scheme of the plot. And I and I know that they like there's like a throwaway line about how like. Oh yeah, Layman's this guy. He had something to do with the bomb too. But like it's it's again, remember. it's a complete throwaway. Like they don't yeah. they don't like like what role does he have? Because we feel like up until that point, we feel like we understand all of the people involved with this bomb, and then all of a sudden, there's this other guy who, oh yeah, you should go kill him because he had something to do with the bomb. And then yeah, I don't even writing, remember now what it was. Yeah, and then there's the guy that Sterling K. Brown wants her to kill. And like I said, it's it just feels like. They're just a bunch of pointless side quests. Like it, these are just levels in a video game that we're going through, and then at the end, you finally get to fight the big boss or whatever. And I, I just didn't understand. Again, it didn't seem like Reza was that hard to track down. After she's trained, why doesn't she just go straight for it? Um, because then they wouldn't have had a movie. Is probably the answer to that. Um, it all would have been. But nice. yeah, that that's my take on the plot, Scott. Anything else to add about this movie before we get into wrap up? No thanks. Let's keep this one short. Yeah, I think we've already spent too much time on it, probably. Um, you alluded earlier to there being one good scene in the movie. Would you like to tell us what it is now as your favorite scene or moment from the rhythm section? Yeah, especially when it comes to action, because we haven't really talked too much about the action besides it being fairly anticlimactic. But I will say, I thought that there was one really well-done scene in this movie. Scott, I hope that you agree, or we can disagree on this. It doesn't actually matter. I don't care. I'll move on from this pretty quickly. But I thought the scene, so you talked about, we talked about the layman scene where she kills layman's uh, and how she's sent there. And the movie opens with that. It's a very confusing opening to the film, to be honest. Um, and, but then we get back to it in the rut cause it immediately flashes back to the beginning of the story and just takes you on from a, a very straightforward narratively constructed film from there. It gets you back to that point. She does kill Layman by, I mean, just pure chance, the fact that he can't reach his oxygen in the middle of the fight, uh, which also makes no sense whatsoever. But after that, they, she goes in this chase through the streets of, Tangiers, I think this is the country yeah, she's in. And good. this scene is done really well. I think that it, it kind of really encapsulates the fact that she just like is not good at what she's doing. 
first off. I mean, of course, the scene right before that where she's killing layman's emphasizes that as well. But she's essentially driving through the streets of Tangiers, being chased by the henchmen of layman's, being shot at. And one of the things, as a sucker for the cinematography that I am, is that this is shot in one take from the passenger seat of, from the angle of the passenger seat of the car. And I think it's done really well because most of the time it's trained uh, on Blake Lively, where you can also see usually, well, not usually, sometimes you can see the car coming and shooting at her in the background. But I really like that because you can't see where she's driving. So I think it builds tension in that way. We talked a lot about that with Waves and a couple other movies, and even 1917 too as well. And then, of course, you also have, um, you know, these, every, every once in a while, will pan forward. Um, but you just can't see everything that's happening around the car. And so it actually is effectively building, you know, action tension in the film that way. And I just thought it was an overall well shot scene. I don't think that it was shot all in one take. There was too many like blurry swings of the camera for me to believe that it was shot in one take, but I thought it was the best part of a pretty poor movie. Yeah, I, that is a good scene. And I like the way it's shot. Actually, Reed Moreno, who directed this, she was a cinematographer first before yeah. she became a director. So that makes sense. Maybe that you would see some of that kind of stylish stuff here. So I like that scene. You're right, though. It is a confusing opening to the movie because you think this is going to be like the big finish to the movie, like what we see at the beginning. And then it's just like pops up in the middle of the movie. Again, it's not even like that significant of a scene. It's just like this is the first guy she kills. I just didn't understand why they chose that scene to be the one to forecast from the beginning. Like, I, I didn't get it. But um, I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll highlight the I talked about it a little bit earlier, but I, I like the scene where she goes out into the water and swims. Mm -hmm. And then she comes back in to Jude Law and like, um, has this line, maybe like the one good line in the movie that I liked from the trailer. I, I mean, it was in the trailer and I liked it from the trailer where uh, she says like, I've got nothing to lose. And he's like, what about your life? And she's just like, what about it? I thought that was a, a cool moment in an otherwise, in, in a movie again, where all of the needle drops f fall flat other than that. Um, and so that sequence is fine, but it's not worth seeing this movie for just to get that sequence. All right, let's put a score on it. What would you give the rhythm section out of 10? <sighs> Scott, I wonder if this will be the lowest score I give on the podcast this year. I doubt it'll be the worst movie I watched in 2020, but I do wonder. 2.8. Yeah, 3.8 from me. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's no reason why it's really that much higher. I, I guess I'll give Blake Lively some points just for, for her performance, but it's a bad movie. Um, and Yeah, I, I gave yeah. Blake Lively 2.8 points for her performance. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and, and, you know, like the January releases last year, there was some decent stuff in there. You know, The Gentleman, while I wasn't a huge fan of it, like wasn't a bad movie. Yeah. But we missed Bad Boys for Life reviewing Just Mercy. And that yes. actually is a, I think that's pretty good. I haven't I'm not a huge Bad Boys fan, but I really enjoyed that and would recommend it for a January release. I need to check it out. But but th again, like, like I was saying, this feels like more of what you're accustomed to getting in January maybe which we haven't had in a while. And, and that's too bad, but you know, they can't all be uh little women. So yeah. Last year it was glass. That was the good January release. I mean, even we had some hesitancy yeah. with that, of course, but that was, was there anything else in January that was, that's still, yeah, I guess I was thinking, I was thinking that Alita was January, but that was February. Valentine's day. Yeah. Yeah. That may have been the only movie we reviewed in January, to be quite honest. But anyway, uh, that should do it for our review of the rhythm section. Scott, after the break, we're going to go through the big eight categories from the Academy Awards, and we're going to make our predictions as to who's going to win this Sunday uh, at the, the Oscars. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, we are going to have next week's episode all about the Academy Awards, which are coming up on this Sunday. Uh, coming up this Sunday on ABC, uh, we will have we will devote our entire next episode to recapping what goes on at the Oscars. But before we do that, we have to make our predictions. We are recording this on Super Bowl Sunday, so we are a week away from the Oscars. We've Both had some yes, yes. We we've had some good submissions in our Oscar poll. Uh, our, our Oscar pool, um, rather that, you know, for, if you, if you win again, you, you get to be either a guest or you get to pick a movie for us to review. And if you want to appear as a guest on that episode, then you can do that. Um, same prize as last year. We did it this year with Jeremy and all about Eve. Um, so please enter that. And, and yeah, so I'm I'm probably going to post that out on social media again for people who, you know, missed the link the first time. So, uh, if you if you've uh, if you've missed the link the first time, check out our social media this week and fill out our Oscar pool. And right now, maybe we'll give you a little bit of a cheat sheet because we are going to predict the top eight categories, the big eight categories, um, and who we think is going to win. Who we think is going to win, not who deserves to win, because I think we've probably made ourselves very clear at this point um, with regard to most of these categories with who we think deserves to win. But uh, as far as who we think will win, Scott. We're a week away. Let's start with the screenplay Oscars, and we'll start with best original screenplay. Who do you like to win this category? Yeah, so original screenplay here. I guess should wait. Should we take a second and and talk about the WGAs, or I, I can also just kind of integrate it to what I'm going to say here. Yeah, I'll do that. Just, yeah, yeah. So last night at yeah, at the WGA WGAs, uh, which is kind of the final Guild Awards before the Oscars. Obviously, the Writers Guild chooses who they have. We've been, we talked about the DGAs, the PGAs, uh, and the Screen Actors Guild last week. Well, the WGA, and we've mentioned this before, but a, a specific caveat to put on this WGA award is that Quentin Tarantino was not nominated because he's not a member of the WGA. Uh, he is nominated in the original screenplay category here. It's him for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It is uh, Bong Joon-ho and his screenwriting partner for Parasite. It's Noah Baumbach for Marriage Story, uh, Ryan Johnson for Knives Out, and Sam Mendez and whoever he wrote. I can't remember who he wrote 1917 with. Christy Wilson Cairns. Christy, Christy Wilson Cairns uh, for that. And so I think that this really is going to come down to um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Parasite. I don't think that, unfortunately, I don't think Ryan Johnson has a chance. I'd be really surprised if 1917 won for, for original screenplay. And yeah, no way. There's, there's just no... I just don't feel like any upswell for marriage story. I just think marriage story has fallen off just like the Irishman has, which is really unfortunate. Cause I think that Noah Baumbach would be my pick if I were to personally choose who, who won this category uh, just cause marriage story affects me in that way. And I think parasite, uh, I would just choose parasite in other categories uh, for me, man, it's tough. I think that the more I think about it, the more I I'm worried that, Parasite's not going to push through and into the other categories. And so for my prediction, I think that Bong Joon-ho will take the uh, original screenplay category here. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you. This is what won at the Writers Guild Awards last oh, I should, night. I should have um, said I'm not sure if you mentioned that. Yeah, but this did win for best original screenplay. I think the buzz for Parasite has been steadily increasing over awards season, um, yeah. especially after you know the big win at the SAG Awards. Um, and I think the buzz for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood maybe has been decreasing slightly as as we get deeper into awards season. I still think it has a good chance at Best Picture, yep. but I don't think it's the hands-on favorite, hands-down favorite anymore. Um, so yeah, I think I, I, I'm going with Parasite. I, like like you, I don't think that the other movies really have a chance. Um, and I think that 
uh, Bong Joon-ho and Han Jin-won are going to get this um, Oscar and people will probably get very excited and think that they're going to win Best Picture. And I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but we'll see. Man, I, I just, I would love it. I, I've been saying this, you know, for the last month, 1917 is my favorite movie of the year. Parasite, I think, is the best of the year. So I'd love it if it won Best Picture. But I just don't see it happening. And I think that it's going to have a hard time breaking through. And I think that original screenplay might be its one opportunity to break through or it's it's best opportunity to break through outside of the international feature category. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, okay, let's move on to best adapted screenplay then, Scott. One which I think uh, was kind of muddy in terms of who was going to win this, but maybe got a little clearer last night after the WGA Awards. The nominees are Taika Waititi for Jojo Rabbit, Greta Gerwig for Little Women, Steve Zalian for The Irishman, Todd Phillips for Joker, and Anthony McCartan for The Two Popes. Uh, Scott, Jojo Rabbit won this last night. Do you think it will take the Oscar as well? Yeah, I, for me, it's hard. I just I just didn't see, I guess, what what the WGA saw in this film. And, uh, you know, I I'm, don't know. We didn't review Jojo Rabbit on the podcast. We ended up missing it because uh, its wide release was not timed well with our schedules. Um, so, you know, for me, I would have 100% would choose Little Women. I think that I don't know how you watch Little Women and don't think, this is what it means to have a best adapted screenplay. I mean, what what Gritiger was able to do and evolve and adapt uh, that that novel uh, into what it becomes on screen, especially after it's been done a handful of times before on the screen. For me, it, it's a no brainer uh, selection for adapted screenplay. But I just don't know if it's going going to be a no brainer for the Academy. Man, I don't know. I I just have such a hard time thinking that Jojo Rabbit is going to win this one because I just don't think it's that interesting. And I might even pick the two popes over it because I think that the two popes script is the thing that stood out for me uh, when I watched that film. It was the thing that I liked the most up there with Anthony Hopkins's performance. But it's hard to go against the tide of the WGA here. Um, I'm just having a hard time, like, because even in the way that I'm laying things out, like, does Joker maybe have a good chance? I mean, he got 11 nominations. I don't know. The Irishman, like, I don't, I think the Irishman probably is the fifth place here and probably doesn't have too much of a chance. You know, Scott, I'm gonna I'm gonna vote with my heart here. I think that Greta Gerwig is gonna win uh, for Little Women. I think something crazy is gonna happen. Jojo is a strange movie. Not everyone got what Jojo was going for, I think. And in spite of what uh, the Academy might have insinuated by not nominating Greta Gerwig as best director, I think they might try to rectify that, that mis, uh, misstep with a win for her in adapted screenplay. Don't get my hopes up, Scott. <laughs> Don't. I just it with my heart. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, because because I saw someone else tweet this last night, and it's exactly how I feel that I had gotten to the place where I was going to be okay, right, with Little Women winning adapted screenplay and nothing else, right? Like, I, I was going to be okay with this being the award. Like, obviously, I wanted it to get nominated for more. Obviously, I wanted it to win more. Um, but if it won adapted screenplay, I was going to convince myself that it was okay. Now it doesn't look like it's going to win for anything. Maybe uh, a best costume design for Jacqueline Duran. Maybe they have a chance for that. But, um, but I mean, Joker, he has that one suit. I mean, hard to, hard to compete with that. But um, I would have yeah. thought JoJo would have a better chance in costume design. But that, that's I don't. I mean, I was making a joke. But um, yeah. I, I don't think that this is a foregone conclusion that JoJo is going to win. I, no, I, I like. I I would I would disagree that the Irishman is in fifth place. Like I still think it has a chance. I, I might even put it third um, ahead of Joker and two popes, but 
but yeah, so so I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see any of those three win, honestly, whether it's Irishman, Little Women, or JoJo. But I am going to go with JoJo. I think, you know, you hinted at maybe some people not being on board with it. I think those people are mostly critics, I think, as far as audiences go. And, and you know, the crowd-pleasing factor, JoJo is definitely on, on the side of uh, – the, the, those people definitely have JoJo on their side because um, this is a pretty well-loved movie from uh, what I see – on Twitter and what I see in like the trivia community and stuff that I'm part of. Um, A lot of people really, really love this movie. Um, And while I like it, I don't love it. Um, I think that the goodwill towards Jojo rabbit may be enough to push it over the line. Although of course I agree with you that like, to me, the little women's screenplay is exactly what you want from an adapted screenplay. Like no one is familiar with the, the um, work that Jojo rabbit is based off on, but based off. So like, I, I don't even think like it's it's hard to judge whether it's a good adapted screenplay or not. Little Women is a story that so many people are familiar with that has, you know, lived with people for hundred for over a hundred years. Um, and yet she made the story somehow modern. She made the, the script sound modern enough to where it's still resonating with people in 2019, even if it's a story set in the Civil War era. Um, and it's resonating for a white male like me who <laughs> hasn't experienced almost anything that these characters have experienced. So uh, I think that this should be a no-brainer for Greta Gerwig, like you said, but I think JoJo is going to take it. I mean, she evolved the way the story was told, like telling it from in a different narrative structure. And, you know, obviously you always take a risk when that happens, but when it comes off well and 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 it's a success, I mean, it's a home run. That's why this should be, I think for me, it should be an easy adapted screenplay, but maybe not. No doubt about that. All right, Scott, let's get into the acting categories now, which I think are going to be pretty well, we boring. Can but them quickly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, best Supporting Actress, you have Kathy Bates for Richard Jewell, Margot Robbie for Bombshell, Scarlett Johansson for Jojo Rabbit, Florence Pugh for Little Women, and Laura Dern for Marriage Story. Scott, any chance of an upset here, or is this Laura Dern all the way? Is there a chance for an upset? Maybe, uh, but no, I think who, Laura Dern. Who would it be if there's going to be a chance for an upset? Yeah, I think if it, I mean if it was going to be a chance for an upset, it was going to be J Lo. But I'm looking at the yeah. list here; I don't see her name anywhere. Um, yeah, no, I, I think if there was going to be an upset. Honestly, like it might be Florence. I mean, like, well, I don't know if this is true or not. But for me, it would be Florence Pugh if that's who the upset would be. I mean, watching Little Women again for the second time last night, I think I appreciate even more uh, how well she plays the two different Amy marches that you see. The one set. You know, during the Civil War, and then the one set after, uh, when the one that's in that's in France, and then comes back later. I think that she's able to so effectively play those two roles that it really would be, uh, for me, like the easy kind of dark horse or second place to usurp Laura Dern. Uh, the, the the reason why I don't think Laura Dern that there really is a chance for an upset is one, Laura Dern won everything this award season, uh, but second, I think that. The fact that Laura Dern is also in Little Women and also gives, I think, what is an outstanding performance. I loved her performance, especially the second time around it, and see how subtle, uh, the, like the subtle little ticks that are added to this character and that she performs to show that anger that she talks about in that one scene with Joe about how she's angry all the time. Uh, and you can, you can see it in the quiet moments, I think, in, in the moments here and there. And I just think it was a beautiful performance from her. And I think because she also has that performance to back her up. I know that this is not how it should work, but because she has that, I think there's no chance that she loses this because she's also phenomenal in *Marriage Story*. 
Yeah, no doubt. Um, I, I think she gives a good performance. I mean, like, again, I would go elsewhere with this one. Um, I think that obviously Florence Pugh would be my top choice. Um, even Margot Robbie, I think, is probably not getting enough love for what she did in Bombshell. I think she was really good in that movie. But um, yeah, I think Laura Dern's going to win this. I, I think if anyone has a chance for an upset, it might be Scarlett Johansson for Jojo Rabbit, just because she is nominated twice. If anything, but, that's the reason she's not going to to win. I yeah, guess. well, I mean that that that's possible, but I I think she might have a better chance in the supporting actor than she, supporting actress than she does have an actress. But either way, I think it's um, it, it, there's really no chance whatsoever. I think this is going to be Laura Dern, um, and yeah, it it is what it is. Again, it's not my favorite right. in this category, but um, there there's no denying that I think this is going to be the one to take it. Look, and the reality right. is, and the nice thing about award season here, and we, we've talked about this a lot this year, about how a lot of, there are a lot of really good nominations, that three of these five people are very deserving of the Oscar, I think. Yeah, I, I'd probably say two, maybe, but Brutal. but anyway, we, we've had that debate before. We won't get into it again. I mean, Laura Darn is an amazing actress. I do love what she does in Little Women. I may have even nominated that performance over this marriage story one, but yeah. um you have to take what's there. Um, and in the case of the Oscars, oftentimes what's there is not necessarily the, the most satisfying thing. But uh, best supporting actor, Scott. Anthony yeah, Hopkins for The Two Puppets. Uh, Brad Pitt for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Joe Pesci for The Irishman. Al Pacino for The Irishman. And Tom Hanks for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Uh, Brad Pitt has been the awards darling for this one. Will he remain so, Scott? Yeah, I think he will. A stacked. I mean, this is a stacked uh, category as well. I, Brad Pitt has kind of been the front runner probably for the last few months, ever since things quieted down a little bit with the Irishman supporting cast. And he's won, again, he's won almost all the awards, I think, if not all the awards this season. For me, I think the, I was talking about how I thought three of the five were very worthy of the Oscar in supporting actress. I think four out of the five here, in my opinion, are very worthy of supporting actor. And the only person that I'd leave off is Al Pacino from the Irishman. Uh, but I think that Brad Pitt, Joe Pesci, Tom Hanks, Anthony Hopkins, all phenomenal performances uh, this year. But I think Brad Pitt's going to run away with it again. I think this is even, if there's going to be an upset, I just, I don't even know, I think it may be Joe Pesci, but I just think with Al Pacino also in the category, I mean, there's no chance that there's an upset with the split vote um, between the two Irishman actors. So it, it's Brad Pitt's to lose for sure. Yeah, I agree. And this is one that I would feel good about winning, honestly. He's great in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, and I think, honestly, of the five performances there, I'd probably pick that one. I love Joe Pesci as well. I think Tom Hanks is great. But um, this is the one that really stands out for me. And he's never won an Oscar before, um, which is, you know, a, he's never won an a, uh, acting Oscar before. Um, of course, he produces some movies. But um, I, I think that he deserves to win. I think he will win. Um, and I look forward to his speech because he's had some of the best speeches this award season. So, um, All right, Scott, best actress is up next. Charlize Theron for Bombshell, Renee Zellweger for Judy, Cynthia Erivo for Harriet, Scarlett Johansson for Marriage Story, and Saoirse Ronan for Little Women. Uh, any chance of Judy getting upset here, of Renee Zellweger getting upset? I wish there were, Scott. I didn't see Judy, so I don't know what the performance was like, so I don't, wa I don't want to say that Renee Zellweger is undeserving or unworthy of the award. She undoubtedly will win on uh, next next Sunday. But I wish I wish Scarlett Johansson could win because I loved her performance in Marriage Story. For me, it was it was the best up there. I think it it really would be a two horse race 
here between the two of them. I don't think, not that the other three aren't deserving, but that the other three are, I think are, are nowhere near this one. Uh, in a different year, maybe Scar ScarJo would have won for Marriage Story, but it's it's gonna go to it's gonna go to Renee Zellweger. So it's a weird paradox, right? Because I just don't think that many of the Academy members have even seen Judy, I, and yet there has either. it there has been no doubt about this from the beginning of awards season. It feels like the type of legacy campaign that, like Glenn Close, for example, got for the wife. And I'm not putting the performances on the same level, but, but Renee Zellweger also has won an Oscar before that. And that's that's the point I was going to make that it feels like that campaign, and yet Renee Zellweger has won an Oscar. So it's like, why is this the person? Why is this the movie that you're I think choosing it's to watch? It's, the, it's the role more than it is the actress. I think it's it's Judy Garland. That's yeah, who I scored. I guess, you know, and I mean, the, a lot of the old Hollywood elite or whatever probably remember Judy Garland, grew up with Judy Garland. So um, it's striking a chord with them for that reason. Uh, it is there's going to be that, though, because Scott, I mean, I think probably everyone has seen Marriage Story, I'd imagine. In the, not, maybe not everyone, yeah. but like a huge percentage of the Academy will have seen Marriage Story. Yeah, I, I mean, that, and that's the thing. I think if there is an upset chance here, uh, Scarlett Johansson or Saoirse Ronan, maybe. But um, I don't think that... Um, that either of them have a realistic chance. I think uh, Renee Zellweger is going to take this, probably give very strange speech based on some of the speeches that she's given this fourth season. But she'll probably uh, all right. Let's finish uh, the acting categories with Best Actor: Jonathan Price for The Two Popes, Adam Driver for Marriage Story, Antonio Banderas for Pain and Glory, Joaquin Phoenix for Joker, and Leonardo DiCaprio for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, send in the clown, Scott. And then the clown Scott. Unfortunately, uh, you know Joaquin. I think it was a great performance. I'll, I'll I'll admit it. I think it's I'm I don't think it's as good as everyone is is claiming. I think some parts, especially on a rewatch, some parts just felt really honestly very overacted. I still think it's a great performance, but I still think that I don't know. It's just everything. Everything is at an eleven in that movie, uh, which is odd because it's substanceless otherwise. Um, but yeah, I don't really want to talk about Joaquin Phoenix, even though I, I will predict that he'll win it uh, because Adam Driver and Leonardo DiCaprio were great in their two respective roles that they're nominated for here. And in a perfect world, we'd be talking about which of these two actors is, is the one who's going to come through here because DiCaprio does something different and amazing from what he's done uh, before in his career. Of course, finally winning his Oscar for The Revenant. He follows it up three years later with this role, which is entirely different and new and great in its own way and then adam driver again if lawrence Pugh is the is the person who had the best 20 best actress uh of the 2019 in terms of the number of roles and the quality of the roles that she did adam driver is is her compliment in the actor category uh, adam driver just had an incredible year and really i mean marriage story is kind of the the climax of of that 2019 season for him i think that it's an absolutely uh, breathtaking role really I, I don't use that lightly a breathtaking role from him and I think I would ultimately, I would choose him, even even with my affinity for Leo, I'd choose him uh, for this award, but it's going to go to Joaquin. Yeah, I've said this before, but this is my favorite Leo performance, I think, ever. So I that he would be my easy choice here, but doesn't matter what our choices are, Scott, because the Academy's not yet voting members of the Academy. Not yet, indeed. Uh, yeah. The Academy's choice is going to be Joaquin Phoenix, though. Um, he his This performance has dominated the conversation ever since Joker was released, um, and Really, we've seen no uh, no waning in terms of how it, how how this performance is being discussed. So uh, I think it's a no brainer. Um, 
All right, let's move on to the last two categories, which I think uh, probably there's a bit more ambiguity about who's going to win these categories, starting with Best Director, uh, Quentin Tarantino for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Todd Phillips for Joker, Bong Joon-ho for Parasite, Martin Scorsese for The Irishman, and Sam Mendes for 1917. Yeah, you know, if, if you're looking at the stats and, and reading all of the cards, uh, all signs right now, I think, are pointing toward Sam Mendes winning for 1917. But I wonder, I wonder, Scott, I wonder if that is what's going to happen because, man, I think Quentin Tarantino uh, is definitely in the conversation. And even maybe more so than Quentin, I think Bong Joon-ho is in the conversation for Parasite. It's just, for me, this year more than other years, because I've just been following award season so much more closely, I have a hard time not just thinking that Sam Mendes is going to win this. Like He won at the Globes. He won at the DGAs. And... Uh, a little bit surprising. I mean, I don't disagree. I think that what he was able to accomplish with 1917 is, you know, again, spectacular, amazing, uh, you know, unequal maybe in, in the type and, and what it's do type of movie and what it's doing with that film. Um, but for me, like, like, should it, should it necessarily win over, over Bong Joon-ho or over Quentin Tarantino? I don't know. Uh, I, I think that is where the ambiguity comes in. It, it wouldn't surprise me if the Academy surprises us and, and chooses Quentin Tarantino, I, I know he won. Did he win at the Critics' Choice? Did he win Best Director at Critics' Choice? Uh, no, I think... Did that, I, I don't know. That's a good question. Well, I know Once Upon a Time in Hollywood won Best Picture at, at Critics' Choice. It might have been Sam Mendes. might have been Sam Mendes. That's what I say. It's just all signs are pointing that direction. And so I am going to choose 1917 because I think the evidence is just mounting that this film is a real juggernaut for awards. But I wonder. It, it wouldn't surprise me whatsoever if... If Bong Joon-ho or, or Bong Joon-ho particularly, but Quentin Tarantino as well, uh, pip through here because I just don't think that they're going to give it to Scorsese or Todd Phillips. Uh, I mean, I guess I wouldn't be too disappointed if they gave it to Scorsese. That's not true. I'd be pretty disappointed, uh, but I'd be yeah, I'd be outraged if they gave it to Todd Phillips. I mean, honestly. Uh, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna vote 1917, which I'm just trying to figure out justify it to myself. But yeah, 1917. Yeah. But you got four really good choices here and Todd Phillips. Um, I think that... You have four um, directors and Todd Phillips. Yeah, exactly. Um, I honestly, I don't think Tarantino has much of a chance. I really don't. Like, I think, I still think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood could win Best Picture. But if it does, I don't think, I still don't think Tarantino is going to win for Best Director. Um, so I, I think that this category is interesting, right? Because I think if Bong or... Sam Mendes wins, then we're basically going to know what's going to win Best Picture. Like, I think if Bong wins for Best Director, I think Parasite's going to win Best Picture. If be, Because I don't think, if, if you're saying that Sam Mendes was not the Best Director of the year, like, I don't know how you, how you can then turn around and say that 1917 was the Best Picture. Because that movie is all about the directing. Like, the directing is the number one thing that you take away from that movie. So I think if, if Mendes doesn't win... For best director, then I don't think 1917 is going to win best picture. However, I, I don't personally agree with that, but God. Well, go ahead. I want to hear why. Why not? I just don't think there's any way Parasite wins best picture is the thing. I just don't. I don't think oh, that the wow. Academy yeah, is going know. to look at their ballots and check all the boxes for Bong Joon Ho. I don't. And I don't either, and that's why I'm saying Sam Mendes is going to win best director, and that 1917 is going to win best picture. I'm I think Bong has a much better chance of winning best director than Parasite has of winning best picture. I I would be more if Bong wins for best director. I would be more surprised if 1917 wins best picture than 
parasite. Just okay. because, again, I don't know how you how you look at 1917 and say, oh, that was the best picture of the year, but we're not going to give the direct best director to Sam Mendes just because that is the movie. Like, but Parasite, the there's so much Academy else going on. I feel like the Do Academy what? token awards to movies all the time. Like, all right, here's your here's this movie's award. Here's this movie's award. Here's this I mean, movie. and, and, and that, you know what, that is fair because, like, you could say the same thing about Roma last year, I think. Like, I, I don't know how you... Well, I mean, it's it is a little bit of a different conversation, right? Because they they did give it best director, uh, but not best picture, which I think is is something different, right? But I, than what we're talking about here. But I again, I, I would be very surprised if if Bog wins for best director. I do think that Parasite or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood will win best picture. I don't think 1917 will win if Mendes doesn't win. But regardless, yeah, I think Sam Mendes is going to win. I just think again, he's won everything. I think it is the standout element of the movie and he's done something we haven't seen before in this type of movie um and so i think he's going to win for best director yeah go, i mean guys if you like 1917 go read the production stories and there's there's a ton of them out there at this point go like look at some behind the scenes footage it's incredible what they're doing in 1917 and, and like the fact that they rehearsed for six months without without the camera basically it's just it, incredible stuff all right scott uh best picture is our final category 1917, yeah. Ford versus Ferrari, Joker, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Parasite, The Irishman, Little Women, Jojo Rabbit, and Marriage Story. Yeah. Um, I think Joker's probably out of the race now. What do you think between Parasite, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and 1917, which I think are the front runners? Look, here's the thing. You have to think about the preferential ballot. That, that is what defines the best picture Um category the fact that they use this preference about they don't use it in any other category and they you rank each of your films one to nine here because there's nine nominees and how it works is you go from basically they you go through a ballot count the first time and then the movie if there's no i forget what it is there's like yeah you have to hit a certain percentage of the vote uh to win best picture essentially and if that if no film reaches that percentage of number one votes they knock off uh the number all basically the film with the lowest number of number one votes every that everyone who on their ballot who has that number one that movie gets eliminated from their ballot and it goes to that ballot's number two and then they recount the votes and then they knock off the second the next film with the fewest number one votes knock that off the top of people's list and then do it again sorry that's not the easiest i think that i did an okay job explaining that not a great job but uh, not a terrible job but basically what you have to think about then what that means is that what film do a lot of people love and no one hates. It doesn't have to be the film that people love the most, but it does need to be a combination of people, a film that people love a lot and hate and very few people dislike. Parasite. No, I don't think that's true. I think that that film is 1917. I think I really do think that film, and it's gonna it's gonna be close between that and Parasite. So you're shaking you're shaking your head, but I'm telling you, like some people, not no, everyone. I think it's gonna, I think it's gonna win too, but I just I, I think that there are more haters for 1917 than there are for Parasite. I think that your, your film Twitter hat like has a bunch of like woke, woke people saying that this film is like not, is, is like the same film we've seen a hundred times, but some people just don't like Parasite's ending. Like are those people critics that you're hearing from and, and are talking about a lot? No, but I think when push comes to shove, some people are, are a little bit off put by Parasite's ending. That doesn't mean that they don't still give the film a positive review but that the, what might hold it back from being the top of people's list, like the one, two or three on people's list is the ending. Again, we're talking minority cases here. We're just talking about like on the margin, what's gonna decide. Cause I think this is ultimately down to Parasite, um, 
1917 and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood even is, is further down this list because a lot, like talk about endings that that polarize people. I think that that ending, like you take the last 30 minutes off that movie and it's probably winning Best Picture just because the fact that it, it polarizes people with the ending. Who, who has been polarized by the ending? I, I'm just wondering who exactly you're talking about here because I haven't seen much dislike for this, any aspect of this movie. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? No, 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 a parasite. I just think that there, there are people out there on the margin who are like, ah, I just don't know that the ending worked for me. Not that they dislike it. I want to be really clear. Not that they hate it, but they think that it, it that's what holds it back from being like a number one on people's list. Mm -hmm. Um, like I don't have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I agree, the ending, yes. Yeah, that's why I was confused. I was like, well, I don't understand what you mean. Sorry. No, no, no worries. I just think that there's just a few people here here and there who are who are holding the back. And again, maybe I'm not plugged in. We're just maybe we're just looking at different people, right? Because I'm not seeing the same thing that you're seeing about 1917. Um, and again, I don't even know if any <laughs> people that I'm seeing are even voting members of the academy, because I don't actually I don't actually keep track of that stuff. But the point is that I think it's a two-horse race, just like the directing category. I think it is a two-horse race between uh, 1917 and Parasite, and it's just going to come down to you know when you know when the uh, when the Oscar voters are filling out their ballot, does do the things that you see uh, or, or don't see, I guess, on Twitter about people not liking certain aspects. Is does that translate to the ballot? And because of the tide that is in the favor of 1917, I just think that in the fact that it's in the forefront of the conversation, including I mean, Parasite is in that conversation too for sure. But I think that. You talk, we talk, you mean you talked in the newsletter last week about Hollywood posturing. I don't think anyone's posturing about 1917. I think people love 1917. Yes, sure. Maybe it's a movie about a bunch of white men in the night, in the 19, in the late 19 teens, right? And doing this thing that is very one dimensional in some, in, in some respects. It's you're right down the pike, uh, middle Oscar baby type of movie. But it, it's the best kind of that, of that kind of movie. And it's, and it's perfect in that way. Um, and Parasite's something different. And I don't think the Oscar has shown too much penchant in the last few years to, to vote for something that is different when they have the opportunity to vote for something like 1917. Uh, you well, could argue Moonlight is the exception to that, but it's the exception, not the rule. Um, so I do think no, it's I, 1917. Well, I was going to argue that I think The Shape of Water is actually a great example because The Shape of Water, and it's probably, probably its biggest uh, competition for Best Picture, was Dunkirk. Um, which, you know, a, a, a movie in very similar in the 1917 vein. Now, we both agree that 1917 is better. And I mean, I stand by that. It's absolutely a better film than Dunkirk. But, uh, and, and I do think 1917 will win, like I've been saying. I think it's going to win. I think all the buzz is around it right now. But uh, I like Parasite, I think it would be, it has jumped to my number two spot, I think, after the SAG Awards, after the Goodwill it's getting. And uh, obviously, I disagree about the preferential ballot. Again, I think if, if any movie is going to benefit from the preferential ballot, it is Parasite. Um, but again, maybe just the different subsection of people that we're seeing um, is, is affecting that. Um, but at the end of the day, um, and, and so anyway, but going back to what I was saying at the beginning with Shape of Water, like I think there you have an example of an independently minded movie, something different, right? Which is what, how you describe Parasite. It's a movie about freaking fish sex um, and directed by a foreign director in Guillermo del Toro. And, you know, del Toro took best director and best picture over Nolan and Dunkirk. Um, so I think we have to be, you know, that is something that I'm mindful of when thinking about this, mm -hmm. but I do think it's going to be 1917. I think it's e even more so than Dunkirk. It's doing something 
while while still being Oscar bait, it is doing something different in terms of the way that it was filmed. Um, and I'm not sure that Dunkirk had that you know talking point about oh it's all done in one you know it, it's all made to look like it's in one take like 1917 has that I think is sticking with people. So I think it's going to win. Yeah, I, I think that's a really great point. I, I actually had completely forgotten about Shape of Water because I, I actually have, I haven't seen Shape of Water. I, I never ended up watching that film, um, which is probably why I forgot about it. But yeah, that's a good point. I, I do wonder about that. I do wonder about that. I mean, I, again, you said it, and I'm, so I'm not contradicting you, but like 1917, a far superior film to Dunkirk. I wonder if Dunkirk had come out on January 10th uh, instead of middle of the summer if yeah. it were one best picture. Yeah, I mean, and and look at last year. Like, I mean, obviously, the I don't think the the movies line up quite as nicely as they do with Shape of Water and Dunkirk. But like, you have Green Book, which is something more in the Dunkirk nineteen seventeen vein, and you have Roma, which is something more in the Parasite vein and Shape of Water vein. And they went the other way with it, right? They picked Green Book, so you just never know what's going to happen. That's true. Um, yeah. So, but but I I do think it's going to be nineteen seventeen. It is trending upward at the right. Yeah, the comparison, again, I, I agree, the comparison's not quite the same, just because they are ultimately, very even among foreign language films, right? Even very different movies between Rome and Paris. Yeah. Very different films between Green Book and 1917. Um, I think the the one argument for Parasite compared to Roma is that, um, I, like, I don't know, it was just, it had, it was more than just a beautiful film. Yeah, Rome, Parasite Roma had... was just a personal, beautiful film, whereas Parasite has, has a lot to say. And, yeah. you know, it, if Roma comes out in i don't know like when parasite came out in august i don't think anybody would have talking been talking about roma for like the major award right for for best picture i think for best director sure but best picture would have been a different story yeah P parasite definitely has a better chance than roma i agree with that um yeah okay scott with that uh oh, actually one more thing are you gonna go see the black and yeah. white version of parasite no i i don't know maybe if it, if it comes near me if i'm able to see it I'll consider it, but I don't know, man. Like, I'm not against black and white movies, but like, this movie just seems like it lends itself to color so much, so much, you know, yeah. more than it does to black and white. I, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to get out of the black and white experience that is different from getting out of the color experience. Whereas I think something like Roma was was perfect f fodder for a black and white movie. Yeah, even Mad Max Fury Road. I mean, the black and white version yeah. of that, I think, is it's very striking. I don't know. I, I, I agree. I don't know what I'd quite get out of a black and white parasite, but I'm, I'm almost curious enough to go see it if it does come out uh, around me. Cause I think it, it had, yeah. a, it had a limited release this weekend and it might expand a little bit. It might get an Oscar bump. We will see Scott. Um, and with that, that should conclude this episode of some like it's Scott, Scott, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? At S Shelton two zero one three. And I am at Scarvy Dent. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this episode Please check out all of our podcasts here in this feed, Some Like It Scott Champs Lunch, everything else that we're doing here in the Some Like It Scott feed. Make sure to check them out. Um, and don't forget about our newsletter. Scott mentioned it there. First one went out this week. Um, you're going to basically in that weekly newsletter, you're going to get a recap of the past week's podcast with the news items we discussed with the reviews of movies that we discussed in the podcast and maybe some that we didn't get a chance to discuss, but uh, just saw in our own time. For example, I watched the Taylor Swift documentary the other day that I'll probably talk about in the newsletter this week. Um, but also, you're going to get Oscar-nominated documentaries. So. Right. Uh, but also, you're going to get an exclusive article slash rant from me. Um, this week's was more of a rant. I think next week's might be more of an article. 
Um, we'll see, but that's something exclusive for people who get are getting the newsletter. So check out our social media if you want to sign up to subscribe for that. Um, I'm happy with how the first one turned out. I'm looking forward to doing some more. So yeah, no, definitely very, check that out. Well. First entry in the, I can't I can't wait to have a, a featured part of the article talking about the movie where you know we actually you know score it well. Yes, uh, indeed. Um, but yeah, so check out everything we're doing here. Don't forget about our Patreon page, patreon.com slash media plug pods. Uh, if you want to support us over there, even if you can't, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, do all of the things uh, that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you will be back for our next episode when, as mentioned, we will be discussing and recapping the Academy Awards from this Sunday um, and probably crying our eyes out about what the actual results were. But uh, I don't care about then, the Oscars to cry, but I'm sorry. I had a that's that's ago. probably fair. That's probably fair. I shouldn't care as much, but for some reason I still do. But yeah. uh, until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.